Welcome to A Teaspoon of Healing, where we explore the pathways to wellness and vibrant living. Listen to personal stories of healing and interviews with experts. It's time to open a doorway to healing in your life through positive changes. Here is your host, Dawn Damari. Hi, I'm Dawn Damari, and you're listening to another episode of A Teaspoon of Healing. Today, my guest is Dr. Gus Vickery. He's a physician in Asheville, North Carolina. So we're going to talk about fasting. We're going to talk about the diet that anyone can follow since genetically we're mostly the same. So whether you're paleo, plant-based, carnivore, or however you choose to eat, you can get some tips here. And we'll also talk a lot about the cause of chronic disease and how to heal holistically. So stay tuned. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. Please consult a physician or other health professional before undertaking changes in lifestyle or wellness habits. The author claims no responsibility to any person or entity for any liability, loss, or damage caused or alleged to be caused directly or indirectly as a result of use, application, or interpretation of the information presented herein. And before we get into our interview, let's hear from one of our sponsors, Goth Tours. Hi, this is Goff, owner of Goff Tours, specializing in stand-up paddleboarding or surfing lessons. I even do snorkeling. You can reach me here. Orange County has what you're looking for. You can contact me via email at gofftours at gmail.com or mobile number is 949-338-5937, gofftours.com. Hi, I'm Don Damari, and you're listening to A Teaspoon of Healing. Today, my guest is Dr. Gus Vickery. Dr. Vickery is a family physician based in Asheville, North Carolina, and he's also the author of the book called Authentic Health, The Definitive Guide to Losing Weight, Feeling Better, Mastering Stress, Sleeping Well Every Night, and Enjoying a Sense of Purpose. Hi, Dr. Vickery. Hi, Don. Thanks for having me on. Well, thank you for joining me today on A Teaspoon of Healing. Yeah, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. And I did read most of your book. I have a few, probably one or two chapters at the end, and I really enjoyed it. And thank you for sending it. Oftentimes, I don't get the actual book and the PDF, so that was great that I got to read it. And it has a great message. And so you practice in Asheville where you have your own private practice, Vickery Family Medicine. And how long have you been practicing there? We opened the practice 14 years ago. So I started it out of residency and now have been practicing for 14 years. Nice. And you wanted to write this book because you have some experience in holistic health and nutrition and the whole body and how your body is designed for health. So when did you start getting into that kind of medicine to holistic healing and nutrition with your patients? It's an interesting story because I had a sort of that fairy tale image of being a family physician when I went to medical school. I was a non-traditional student. I dropped out for a long period of time, traveled, worked, and then when I went back to school and studied science, the doors opened and I went into medicine. And I knew I wanted to be a family doctor. And I had in my mind the idea of it just being a very useful type of career where you could help people with common problems. You could sew someone up or diagnose something that was causing them a problem. And I 
pictured myself doing that throughout my day. But it was just a few years into working my clinics that I began to realize that what I was seeing every day was very different than what I had envisioned, that people were coming in with a lot of concerns, a lot of symptoms, and diagnosed conditions, that while I had had some exposure to them in medical school, the treatment algorithms were insufficient to really help them feel better in a consistent or sustainable way. And so when your patients keep coming back and they keep getting sicker, meaning their diabetes is getting worse or their blood pressure is getting worse or their depression has recurred or their insomnia is recurring, et cetera, et cetera, you start to feel fairly ineffective as a doctor. The idea is to help people to be well. And there was a part of me where it just didn't resonate. You know, I studied the body. I think one of the great things about traditional medical schools is our intensive study of the human body. We really do learn a lot about how the body works, biochemistry, molecular biology, physiology, et cetera. And from that training, I knew that our human bodies are designed well. They're well suited to this life on planet Earth. And when given the right information, they should be well. And it certainly wasn't normal for so many people to be sick in the way that they were. And then at the same time, we started seeing the same thing happening with our pediatric populations. So kids were coming in with these conditions and that really didn't make sense to me. But as you probably know, a lot of our treatment algorithms, they're based on good scientific studies, but those scientific studies are often sponsored by pharmaceutical companies. And so while that doesn't mean that the science is bad, it just means you're only looking at it through one lens and not other lenses. And it really became necessary for me to go learn a little bit more about how people can be healthy. And that, of course, led to a better understanding of nutrition and stress and sleep and what allows us to genetically or to experience our best genetic health. And it also root causes of diseases, because if it wasn't normal for people to be sick, then there had to be an explanation. And what were the true root causes of these diseases so that people could understand what was causing them and do something about it? Like you said, so many people having chronic illnesses. And what, are the, what were the most common conditions, chronic conditions that you were seeing in your practice? There was a constellation of them, but there's a few that stand out. One was people were just gaining weight. And that's, of course, borne out by the statistics. CDC studies showed that from 1960 to 2010, the average American gained 40 pounds of extra weight on the body. And uh, a lot of that is in the form of visceral fat, which is kind of a diseased tissue. It's you know not good for us. And so people were dealing with weight gain and they couldn't lose weight. And then on top of that are the metabolic conditions that often accompany that, such as diabetes, high blood pressure, cholesterol issues, high triglycerides, but people don't really feel that, but it would be part of their diagnosis. And then beyond that, of course, the endpoints of those are cardiovascular disease and even earlier onset of dementia, et cetera. And then there were the people coming in with primarily stress-related illnesses. So these were people coming in with chronic depression, anxiety, insomnia, and just every single day feeling nervous and unhappy and tired and exhausted. Also, a lot of adults coming in who had never been diagnosed with ADD suddenly thinking they might have an ADD diagnosis because they couldn't maintain focus any longer. So it kind of clustered into those two scenarios, metabolic or general mental health. Your book, Authentic Health, has a lot of information. Again, I really enjoyed it. And a lot of it was about the ways that we can all manage our health outside of being at the doctor, you know, meditating, exercising, you know, stuff we all know, and diet, and sleeping well every night, which is a huge deal, and managing stress. So what I guess we'll touch on, we can't touch on the whole book, but <laughs> the diet section was really interesting. So many of your patients who were pre-diabetic and metabolic syndrome, they probably were eating the standard American diet, which is what we're pretty much raised on. 
And so I like your recommendations and some of it, you know, the newest research seems to show that, you know, fats yeah. are not the problem, mm-hmm. but it kind of goes against what the American Heart Association says. It's a great question. And we know that there's some real commonalities to the diet that supports human health because our genetics, it's like 99.7%. We share the same genes. It's a very small percent of our genes that differentiate us from one another. So we know that there's just going to be common elements that support human health that make sense based on our ancestry. And then there's some variations depending on exposures and personal issues and geography and gut microbiome and a lot of different ways that you can kind of slice it up. But the commonalities is what I wanted to focus on it was what are the general principles of eating that will support good health regardless if you want to be primarily paleo or plant-based whole food or carnivore or what have you. And in the studies, what I found consistently were there were three primary principles that always stood out on the obesity studies and on how you can reverse chronic weight gain and also potentially reverse chronic diseases such as diabetes. And so these are pretty simple, but essentially one and the first and the main one is mindfulness of eating. That seems pretty obvious that we start to really value eating, that we start to become very mindful of what food is for us. It's our sustenance. It's our primary source of energy that it's an amazing amount of information for our body, for its performance, for our genes and how they express themselves. And when we begin to honor that role, that means we're going to slow down and we're going to think about things. We're not going to just go with cravings and urges or what we've always done before. It also means we're going to honor, we're going to eat alone sometimes, but a lot of times we might take time to be in community when we eat and to enjoy conversation and to chew our food thoroughly and to take our time eating, which can prevent overeating and helps with natural satiation function. So one was the mindfulness of eating, and I really tried to impress that in the book. And of course, the overall arching theme of the book is mindfulness in these different habit areas. The second was balancing feeding and fasting. I wrote the book about two to two and a half years ago. That's when I was working on it and studying the science of obesity and human metabolism and the new research. Uh, Now fasting has become quite faddish, which I think is great because I think there's just truth to it. The studies were supporting a number of reasons why when we go into a catabolic state or an in-between feeding state, our body performs certain functions that are very restorative for it and necessary for it. And that because most of our human ancestors did not eat frequently like we do, our genetics are really adapted to less frequent eating. And so balancing feeding and fasting is a general principle, but I wasn't really telling everybody they had to go on an extended fast and water fast. I was just really teaching about the difference between those two states. And that was where I got a lot of pushback, not pushback, but a lot of questions more immediately because it seemed foreign to people at the time. And they were, you know, very convinced that they had to eat breakfast per se, or that they needed to eat six small meals a day if they were trying to lose weight, et cetera. And so I had to really help them to understand that fasting is not dangerous, that the body is designed to be able to do it well, but you have to retrain that skill. And then the third pillar, which I'm very dogmatic about, is you have to eliminate nutritional stressors, which I consider the food version of cigarettes. And these, of course, are processed foods and fast foods. And, you know, when you study that, I mean, it sounds like I'm being extreme when I say that, but if you study it, it's really pretty much true. These foods, they've been engineered to be just that. They contain industrialized oils that are pro-inflammatory. Of course, the sugars, the carbohydrates that are, you know, so rapidly absorbed and create abnormal hormonal responses with high insulin, et cetera, et cetera. You can go down a rabbit hole with glyphosate and the disturbance of the gut microbiome. But my point wasn't to do all that. It was to teach these general principles that anybody could apply. And so, you know, the food equivalent of cigarettes, meaning the foods themselves are actually designed to trigger the human reward system. And when you encounter something that triggers your reward system, 
You cannot control your behavioral response. It's part of human design. And so you'll blame yourself for overeating when, in fact, you encountered a food that was designed to cause you to overeat, purposely so. And so these foods themselves directly trigger disease in the body through abnormal hormonal responses and also triggering inflammation and disturbing our gut microbiome. And they simultaneously are addictive and we can't stop eating them. And they literally have no nutritional value other than they have calories, meaning they'll keep you alive, but alive but sick. So those three principles, I found that when you apply them to any eating paradigm, they'll virtually fix anything. It can get more complicated for some because they might have a lot of things that have disturbed their normal function. And so they need to dial it in and get into more specifics. But when it came to the diabetes, the number one thing I saw that when people would begin to eat whole foods, natural foods that were nutrient dense and lower in calories and high in fiber and have longer intervals between their feeding, they would lower insulin responses, they would lower their blood sugar, and they would begin to develop metabolic flexibility. And the next thing they knew, without being on a low-calorie diet, they were losing weight. And not only that, completely reversing the diabetes, meaning we had people who were on insulin. I have cases right now, people who were on insulin for type 2 diabetes who now have a hemoglobin A1C of 5, which means they're really not even diabetic any longer. There's two things, the habits of eating, and then just when you're getting that lightheaded. I get lightheaded, so, and I'm trying to extend my fast. Great question. And we do have to be clear that with all the hype about fasting and how good it is for us, not everybody is a good faster, right? I mean, there are some individuals who are just going to be better at grazing. Now, when people ask about, okay, well, what about those who grazed all day long historically? And there are patterns of populations that did that. But the difference between them is they were walking 20 miles and cracking open nuts and digging out tubers and eating small herbs and stuff like that, right? So there's a big difference between that and sitting and munching on even healthy versions of packaged foods all day long while you sit at a desk. They were basically exercising yeah. all day. So yeah. But ultimately, the human body, if you look at its design, we're designed for what's called metabolic flexibility, which means we can switch energy sources at any given moment. We have what's considered a closed energetic system up to a particular point in time. And then if you're not putting energy into it, then it'll start to break down. But what that essentially means is that everything that we have within our body is good enough for us to go for a defined period of time without having to put any more energy into it, with the exception, of course, we have to breathe air and we have to drink water. And so our body, it can take what it has stored and we can use first our stored glycogen and turn that into glucose. And when we run out of that, we can begin to use stored fat and then we can take the backbones of the fats or take the product of the fats, the ketone bodies, and begin to use that as a fuel. And simultaneously, we can convert amino acids back into glucose and we can also make certain essential amino acids and recycle proteins. And you get the idea, right? The body is capable of managing itself energetically, which makes makes sense because there would have been no reason in ancestral times if you went a couple of days without eating that your body should go into shock and you should break down because that would prohibit survival. You'd never have been able to go hunt and gather and fish and do what you need to do. Well, what's happened with our modern eating paradigm, even for healthy eaters now, is that we ate so frequently and we ate certain types of foods that we lost that metabolic flexibility. Yeah, our body genetically has that capability, but it hasn't been using, so it's downregulated. So when someone begins to experiment with fasting, one of the first things that can affect them is they might become dehydrated. They don't focus on drinking enough fluids and they don't recognize that foods have water in them as well. And so you do need to drink more fluids. They also can become mineral depleted. And if they become mineral depleted, they'll feel weak or dizzy. 
And so, you know, one, attend to your hydration, attend to your minerals, et cetera. So perhaps having filtered remineralized water is a great support for fasting. The other thing to recognize is that you're trying to redevelop a skill in your body, this metabolic flexibility skill, but that takes time. It means your body has to upregulate dormant genetic pieces of information that then have to get built into proteins and enzymes. And, you know, it takes time. It's like building a factory. And so your body will begin to do it, but in the process, it'll make you a little bit uncomfortable because you've been trained to eat. When you're hungry, when you're weak, you should just go eat. And there's always been food. You could go eat. And your brain knows that. There's a difference between minor symptoms like hunger waves where you feel pretty hungry and you'd like to eat, maybe even a slight bit of nausea. You kind of want to go eat and that might last 15 minutes or you feel a little bit weak and dizzy and you drink some water and actually beginning to get into the stress response of hunger. And this is a really important point because if you're using fasting to promote positive hormonal responses and lose weight, but you fast beyond your body's capability and you initiate the stress response of real hunger, your body is then going to release cortisol and catecholamines, and you're going to release glucose or make glucose. You're going to begin to take protein and convert it into glucose. And now you've kind of passed the point where you're getting the benefit. Now you're stressing the body. That kind of hunger is pretty intense. You know, you kind of know you need to eat. And people should not try to force a fast through a time like that. They should absolutely stop, eat something. But then you don't want to just go and drive through the drive-thru. You want to have some nuts, you know, or something beside you. People think they're getting low blood sugar. Some are, right? Some people are getting low blood sugar. Some people could potentially have medical hypoglycemia. And they might need to go eat something that has sugar. For everyone else, it's not really low blood sugar. The body is making its own sugar. It's making sure it keeps the sugar there, but you're just feeling intensely hungry. Your body needs to know that you're putting energy. And that's where if you stop and eat some nuts and drink some water, dip some celery and nut butter, or eat some yogurt or what have you, that'll take care of that for you. And then you can move on. You know, for you, what I would suggest is you just keep experimenting with the interval. Give yourself a little more time and see how you feel. And when it's time to give in, give in. And when it's not, you don't. And if you can just do that one or two days a week, most people get to where they can go with no problem 20 to 24 hours so they can have that occasional longer fast. Yeah, that's what I'm working towards to be able to do the 24 hours. I know some people are doing you know, the 36 hour and yeah, that's great. I'm not there yet, but yeah, nobody needs to rush it, right? Nobody needs to bum rush it. Take your time. Let your body work for you. Yeah. So how many days per week do you recommend to do, let's say, a full 24-hour fast? Could that be once a week that that's beneficial for an average, for the average person? Honestly, there's no specific recommendation. Once a week is absolutely beneficial. Once a week, 24-hour fast. A full day. Yeah, there's a lot of metabolic benefits to that. And what we're really talking about is cellular health. If a person's focused on body composition, 14 to 16-hour fasts are good enough. That alone, provided you're mindful about your other habits, can be useful for changing body composition. When you get into some of the benefits of fasting that have to do with detoxifying the body, restoring cellular health, there's something called cellular autophagy. It's a hot topic right now, but you know it's an important health issue. To get into that, you want longer fast, really, to get into that period of time. I mean, to get into those processes. So if you're doing it say, because you've been diagnosed with a condition and you want to use fasting to help your body heal itself, that's when you need to look at longer fasts. Once I trained myself to do it, I found it was pretty easy for me. And it's easy for me to do a 22 to 24 hour fast 
through my work week, when I'm working my clinics and I'm busy. It makes my life easy. Instead of having to stop and think about eating and digest food and all of those things, I can just focus on staying hydrated. And then when I get to the end of the day, I can really enjoy a great meal with my family, a really nutritious meal. It's not under eating. It's just restricting the timing that you're eating. Right. Or they say time-restricted eating. Because mm-hmm. you're technically not trying to reduce calories. You're really just restricting the time interval that your body is physiologically having to enter into the process of digestion and assimilation. We're definitely seeing right now with health statistics in our country the end result of moving to a paradigm of eating all the time. And we see mm-hmm. that it doesn't work for the human body. Absolutely not. It seems like we're always in the fed state. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure, you know, when people were, you know, when we were progressing and we're developing these technologies like this is great because it can help people you know that are experiencing food insecurity mm-hmm. that are another you know the fact that there's modern agriculture so on and so on but it's just so available there's always food there's even at office depot where you don't need to have food there's candy in the checkout aisle at any time you can say oh i'm hungry and you can get satiated with usually not that great of food, but yeah, it's everywhere. And most of the time, it's not true hunger, of course. It's not a true need for energy in the body. It's a trained condition pattern, and it's deep-seated in the central nervous system, which is why I spend so much time teaching about that the craving and the urges and mindfulness and how the brain works. Because once I work with people on this paradigm, they'll be honest about, you know, I'm very concerned or nervous about how am I going to deal with my hunger? I don't like the feeling of hunger. And we really have to retrain their perspective on that and help them with that. Then they find the fasting easier than a diet because with fasting, you're just not having to make choices. You're just not going to eat. You just go take that walk outside and don't go to the restaurant and try to order the salad at the place you used to always eat the burger. It just becomes easier when you don't have to make those choices. Right. Absolutely. And now mindful eating is another thing that a lot of people don't really think about and might not think is important, but it really is. I mean, a lot of us, if people are eating through lunch, you know, it's because we got to get stuff done. And I'm not saying you have to stop doing that, but being mindful and just looking at the food, it all starts in the brain, Mm -hmm. correct? Like the digestion process and being able to sit down, relax and eat. What are some tips for people who are, yeah, who are super stressed out, they're super busy and, you know, have a half hour lunch and they're eating at their desk or they're just eating in the car, which is completely eating in a stressed out state. How can they make some changes? What are some small things they could do? So the first thing to recognize is that in that state, if your usual food choice that you're eating is something you know that's not helping you with your health goals, is to recognize that it's probably because it's helping you with your stress. It's not really, but it kind of is, meaning that foods that are concentrated in certain flavors, salt, sugar, fat, and glutamate, glutamate is the bacon flavor, it's protein, is what it indicates to our brain. And when you concentrate those and you eat them, you trigger a reward response deep in your mind and your reward center. So you get a little dopamine. You get a little what's called endogenous opiate peptide, which gives you a little bit of, ah, I feel better. And carbohydrates will also elicit some serotonin response in the brain. So there's this sort of psychological response. So first of all, if your lunch break every day is becoming your sort of, oh, I've got to decompress and de-stress, it's going to be very hard to uh, make different food choices because while nutritious foods will truly satiate you, you'll feel better later when you eat them, right? So if you chose fresh vegetables, a good chopped up salad with healthy fats on it, et cetera, you'll be fully satisfied. 
and it'll taste good, but it is not going to give you a dopamine rush. You know, it's not going to, it's not going to give you a euphoric response. And so, you know, you have to one, go into this with the idea of what is food for me today? You know, it's intentionality. It's the mindfulness of what you're really after. You know that you're going to crave that meal because that meal tends to make you feel better, at least for a moment. But you also know how you feel after you feel guilty. You feel like you didn't uh, make the right choice. You feel kind of sick and bloated and tired, right? Because the meal itself stressed your body. It didn't nourish your body. And so as you lead up to that point, you remind yourself what you want. Now you need to find other ways to de-stress then, right? You need to find other ways to help your brain feel better. And I describe that in a book on well-being versus pleasure and stress responses. And that's choosing things that do provoke a good positive neurochemical reaction for you. That might be finding some fresh air, taking a short walk, doing some meditation or breath work, having a full conversation with a fun friend, turning on some music, something that helps you feel better and feel less stressed so that when you enter into your eating, you're not doing it from such a psychologically vulnerable position so that you have more command over the choice. And then finally, you know, nobody, I mean, if you're eating in 30 minutes and just kind of cramming it down, trying to get back to your work, then it's really functional at that moment. Food's not this incredible experience for you. It's just a functional experience. And if that's the case, then it needs to be, it actually needs to serve you, which means you would need to eat nutritious foods that actually give you energy and create satiation, meaning you're not going to get hungry again. Because our body's satiation function is based on volume and nutrients. And, you know, when it's working properly, when we eat whole natural foods that are higher in fiber and nutrients, we will turn off hunger and turn it off for hours, right? I mean, whereas when you eat foods that actually trigger the reward system and override normal satiation function, which is housed in the brainstem in the brain, you will not only binge eat and overeat and make yourself sick, you'll very quickly want more food. Right. So it doesn't serve its purpose in the end. Ultimately, I know this is kind of long winded, but basically you have to have in your mind what you want today. You want to feel good. You want to have energy. You want to end the day feeling good about how you cared for your body so that it can work for you tomorrow, which means if you only have 30 minutes for lunch, you're going to choose nutritious foods or you're going to train yourself to fast and go take a walk. Right. And I promise the listeners that if they begin to train themselves to do this, they will not regret it. I mean, I've seen, I don't know, 70,000 patients in my career at this point. I haven't had a one that switched from an unhealthy lunch habit to a very productive self-care habit at lunchtime that ever switched back again, that ever said that didn't serve me. I wish I had never made that change. They all say my days go better. I feel better. I'm less likely to overeat again in the evening. Once you do it, you don't go back. Wonderful. Now, another component that you mentioned in your book is sleep. And a lot of people are starting to realize this, how sleep can actually help you lose weight. Do you think it can also help people with some of these conditions, the prediabetes, metabolic syndrome, if they're getting the proper sleep? Mm -hmm. We know, I mean, gosh, some great books recently out on circadian rhythm function, written to everybody, easy to read and understand, that really help make this clear for us. Circadian rhythm is so deeply entrenched into our genetic you know, adaptations over however many years Homo sapiens have walked this planet. And it is just foundational, our entire physiology and our entire health. So you could get all the other parts right in the book I wrote. You could begin to honor the nutritional principles and work on your stress and your breathing and begin to move more. But if you dishonor your circadian rhythm, you'll still become sick. 
you'll still end up gaining weight if that's your tendency or developing diabetes. It is absolutely foundational and sort of vice versa. When you begin to honor circadian rhythm, you can actually miss on some of the other habits and your body will still give you back pretty good health, right? So it is very, very important. In fact, so much study has come out since I wrote that chapter. I'd like to go back and really just say even more so you got to do this. This isn't optional. But I think I'm pretty clear in the book that sleep is like drinking water and breathing air. It has to be done. And so we know we're sleep deprived. We know we don't get the restorative sleep. Artificial lights, they changed everything. Blue light exposure all day long, stressful stimuli. People have frequently interrupted sleep. There's a lot of sleep apnea out there, et cetera, et cetera. And so people are waking up, they're tired, they're grumpy, they feel depressed, they can't focus, et cetera. They can't control their behavioral responses, so they end up eating the foods they know they shouldn't eat or smoking more, drinking more, whatever, right? We get all that. But what happened is we begin to come up with solutions like, okay, we have prescriptions. Oh, you're having trouble sleeping. Here's a prescription. And of course, the prescriptions, all they did is temporarily alter brain chemistry in a way to put you to sleep, but they didn't really treat the underlying problem disturbed circadian rhythm. And so eventually people came back and the medication no longer worked. And they were now having two problems. One is that they were stuck on a medication that wasn't working and they're still not sleeping. And I began to realize that there's just simply a way the body's designed. There is nothing you can do but give the body the opportunity to get proper rest period, the end. I have no shortcuts. I have no ways of hacking that. You can't biohack, supplement, or medicate your way past sleep deprivation. And it would be kind of funny, and I mean this not in a disparaging way, because my patients and I, we have great relationships, and they trust me, and I don't judge them. But I would have patients who would come to me and say, I'm just so tired, and I just feel like something's wrong, and we'd do blood tests, et cetera. And it would be like, okay. And I knew that they weren't sleeping, and so we'd talk about it. And then finally, they'd come back again and say, okay, so I don't have a thyroid issue, and I'm not an email et cetera, et cetera. So how am I going to get energy? And would go back to the sleep issue and, and they'd say, okay, I agree. Yeah. Four hours of sleep is not enough. And yeah, that would affect me. But yeah, still, how am I going to get my energy back? <laughs> and I was like, oh my gosh, they're not putting it together that until they actually sleep, there'll be no chance for them to feel the energy they're supposed to have. They've got to do that. The good news of this is this, and for many people who've experienced the problem, I mean, they'll say, no, no, it's not that easy. And, and they're right. It's not. It takes time. Is that because the body is designed to have good circadian rhythm function and for that to be honored, when you begin to provide it the right inputs for that, when you begin to honor the need and set it up properly and do that, you will eventually become a good sleeper again. It will happen for you. It just takes a while to retrain the brain. And when that happens, it's like unlocking a superpower you didn't know you had. Excellent. So what are maybe two things people could do? Then I'm going to ask about shift work. So if people that are not shift workers, so what are two things that they could do at night to get for better sleep hygiene? One thing not at night is to get as much natural light throughout the day as they can as much exposure to natural light and start as early in the day as possible. First thing in the morning, if you can get 10 minutes of natural light, do it. In the evening, turn off screens. I think everybody knows this, but you have to turn off the screens. I mean, so there's several different levels on which they impact our ability to get to rest. First is just the stimulation, right? I mean, if you're watching news channels or social media feeds, your brain is getting stimulated, whether it's provoking positive emotions or negative emotions, it doesn't matter. You're not taking yourself into a deeply relaxed state. Secondly, then there's the blue light, right? So you can screen out some of that blue light, but nonetheless, your eyes are still getting some. And we know that the concentrated blue light tells your brain that it's daytime and it's not time to go to sleep and suppresses normal circadian rhythm function. 
And then finally, there's the electromagnetic frequencies, which is a hotbed area of science. And, you know, a lot of data is coming out that prolonged exposure to high levels of electromagnetic frequencies do disturb normal brainwave function and can disturb normal sleep patterns. So turning off your screens at an appropriate interval, I prefer at least two hours before bed. I prefer no screens at all. I'd prefer people, you know, just to settle in with their families, play a board game, read a book, talk with friends, take a walk, right? But okay, I get it. It's a reality. But at least two hours before bed, turn off your screens. Secondly, it's hard to bring it down to only two, but I guess if I had to pick the second, it's make your room a sleep sanctuary, right? Dark, cool, comfortable, no blinking LEDs anywhere, no cell phone near your head, no television. Make your room a sleep sanctuary, a great place to get sleep. So if you turn off the screens and you do that, there's a pretty good chance you're going to start sleeping again. Great. And now what about people who are shift workers? Some days they work the day shift and then they work the night shift. It is brutal. Yeah. How are they, you know, the circadian rhythms are all over the map. It is brutal for them. It is really hard. So one is try not to remain a shift worker forever, right? If you can help it, studies are very clear. Medical doctors, pilots, truck drivers, et cetera. We have health complications from this. It ages us. Right there again, just like I said before, there is no biohacking your way out of a constantly disturbed circadian rhythm. So that said, always be seeking for a way to get back to normal rhythm for your body. You have to then begin to manage the damage potentially, right? So you have to, one, become very regimented in how you approach those shifts and the cycles of on shifts and off shifts. You can use melatonin and that can help right, with resetting some circadian rhythms. Some people are just, say, working in 11 to 7 overnight every single night. So they just flip their days and nights. And so that's a little bit different. And then there are the other people who are usually rotating through different shift cycles over time. And that's the more challenging one because then they're having to kind of switch their circadian rhythm periodically. And so in those particular cases, if that's what they're dealing with, then what they need to try and do is maintain a lot of structure around their schedules. And when they get into a day that they have to sleep during the day, then they need to blackout curtains, the sleep sanctuary, all of that, and take a melatonin and try to shut down their brain and get it into that deep sleep mode. And then when they wake up, they need to expose themselves to natural light. And in those cases, you might expose yourselves to some blue light to try and get the brain waking up and moving into that evening shift as though it was actually day, even though it's night. And then what you're dealing with is a lot of oxidative stress on the body from all the circadian rhythm disruption. So I would be really diligent about nutrients. And I'm going to give my body more nutrients, more antioxidants, more polyphenols. You know, these are these biocompounds we get from a healthy organic produce, from dark berries, from green teas and coffees and dark cacao, et cetera, right? I'm going to really try to focus on getting as many of those nutrients into my body that will promote my own ability to neutralize oxidative stress responses. And then I'm going to look for a job that is off shift work. Yeah, exactly. So if you're mostly a night shift worker, I guess it's just kind of the same thing. You want to get a different job, but is it easier to train if you have to sleep a lot during the day Yes, and work at night? Is it easier to deal with that? It is easier to do, especially if you really take care of the bedroom, meaning you 
get whatever it is, whether it's white noise background, you black out curtains and you can create it like you're in a cave. What happens for a lot of my patients is they do that part way and then the neighbor's cutting their grass and something. And so they never quite get it. And it's a struggle because when you're doing that, you already feel socially disconnected. And so you're finally getting off and you have just this little snippet of time to re-engage like a normal person and you really want to do that. And of course, in your off time, you want to do that. But when it comes to the day-in, day-out routines, you really got to get dead on serious about, no, I have to shut my brain down and get my rest because I've got to get the restorative sleep. The other thing I would definitely do, and I recommend this for virtually everybody, is track. I think the newer devices like the Aura Ring, uh, it's very popular now. It doesn't emit EMFs overnight. You can turn it on airplane mode and it'll give you a number of metrics that are very valuable to understand your sleep cycles. Then you can begin to get a sense of how much restorative sleep you're getting, how much deep sleep you're getting. And it's also important for people to know that the body is okay occasionally missing sleep, just like it's okay missing food, right? We tend to catastrophize the idea we have one bad night's sleep and it's going to be a horrible day, when in fact, one bad night's sleep really won't do much to you at all other than make you slightly tired the next day. It doesn't really impair function. We can catch that up. It's the shift work is an issue because it's sustained, it's consistent, and we know that that's going to lead to disease and dysfunction in the body. But if you're having the occasional interrupted sleep, if you have a job where you take call and maybe once a week or twice a week, you'll have an interrupted night. You can make that up. And when that happens, you can just kind of remind yourself it's okay. And that way you reduce the stress response and the anxiety associated with that. Absolutely. Oftentimes people I've suffered from insomnia and you can get just anxiety about not sleeping yeah. and it's even harder. To yeah, sleep. it is. You get totally wound up because think about when you're anxious, right? That's going to be a fear response in the body and fear is adrenal. I mean, you're not trained to be able to go into a deep restful sleep when your body thinks something's threatening you. Right. Excellent. Now your book, where can people get it? I'm assuming Amazon, but can they also get it in bookstores? Yes. So it is in bookstores. The publisher kind of keeps up with the list. So the Barnes and Nobles carried them, some of the local independent bookstores. I mean, it wasn't in every bookstore in the country, but it could be in your local bookstore. Amazon, absolutely, and all the online vendors have it. We sell it through our practice through my Health Shepherds website, but it's less expensive through Amazon. Great. And now the Health Shepherds website, we talked about this before we started the interview. Do you have a blog there? Where can people find when they visit healthshepherds.com? The place where I could take each of these core areas of content in the book, the mindset, the metabolism and eating, et cetera, and I could create more information for people. As we discussed in the beginning, I tried to keep simplifying this material. I really wanted it to be accessible to everybody, an easy-to-read book, and even inspirational to people. So I didn't go as deep into some of the scientific details or other aspects that some people may be interested in. So that's the place where I can create those articles or offer commentary and various topics of health. And, you know, we're Populating it. There's a lot of blogs now that I've produced there that follow structured series, but some of the video series that we've been working on creating, they're not quite there yet, but we are launching a YouTube channel. It's kind of sparse at the moment. It's called The Family Doctor, and that will actually have good structured series that go through the science of obesity and metabolism and how to lose weight, et cetera. Now, before we sign off, is there anything you want to share with our listeners that we didn't cover when we talked today? I think we covered it. I think the main message I try to communicate to people, including my patients, 
is that your body is really designed well, regardless of what's come before and regardless of circumstances beyond your control. I mean, we all have stuff. There could have been accidents or genetic conditions or other things. But regardless of that, the context you find yourself in, your body is designed well. And if it's given the right information, it will become healthy for you. It will function well for you. But it's very important that it get the right information. And the good news is, is that right information, it's not hard to find. I mean, when I say hard to find, I mean, the simple elements it needs to thrive are around you. They don't require special devices. You don't have to spend a lot of money. You just have to know what it needs. And once you have that truth, you'll be self-sufficient in maintaining your own health. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Vickery, for joining me today on A Teaspoon of Healing. Thank you, Don. I appreciate your time. And people can go to healthshepherds.com and read your blog and find out more information. Subscribe to the YouTube. And the YouTube will be family the Family Doctor, Dr. Gus Vickery, yes, The Family Doctor. Right, and look for the book on Amazon. Again, it's Authentic Health, The Definitive Guide to Losing Weight, Feeling Better, Mastering Stress, Sleeping Well Every Night, and Enjoying a Sense of Purpose. Again, thank you, Dr. Vickery. Really enjoyed our talk, and I know it's going to be helpful to a lot of people. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of A Teaspoon of Healing. If you have any questions for me, or for Gus, visit my website, teaspoonofhealing.com. Click on contact. I'll get back to you. You can also find me on Instagram at teaspoonofhealing or facebook.com slash teaspoonofhealing. Stay tuned next week for more. Thank you for listening to A Teaspoon of Healing with Dawn Damari, your home for wellness and vibrant living. For more resources on wellness and vibrant living, visit us online at teaspoonofhealing.com. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. Please consult a physician or other health professional before undertaking changes in lifestyle or wellness habits. The author claims no responsibility to any person or entity for any liability, loss, or damage caused or alleged to be caused directly or indirectly as a result of use, application, or interpretation of the information presented herein. Hey there, this is Sean. And this is Frank J from Sensibly Cynical. And you can check us out on iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite podcatcher application. Or just be real, you can just Google our name, Sensibly Cynical. That too.